Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, ah, welcome again. We're going to start with uh, part two of what might be a three or a four or a five part series. We're not really sure. Part one was several months ago, so it might take me the better part of a couple of years to actually get through all of this, but that's okay. Uh, and, and, and so for those of you who missed part one, I'm going to retell it all right now. No. Um, for those of you who missed part one, I'm going to just talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, the rationale behind what we're doing. And, uh, you know, because so often we come to church each Sunday and we hear an encouraging message about, um, uh, hopefully about something to do with scripture <laughs> or, you know, something that's going to power us, a, a revelation of who God is. And, um, and one thing that's always fascinated me is, is church history. Because, and you might sort of say, well, what on earth, you know, we're part of a forging ahead, doing something new, trying to be, you know, different and engaging in a, in a way. You know, we have a new revelation, a new way of looking at things, so why do we need to bother with how things have been done in the past? And uh, that's a very good question. And my thought with it all is that, well, actually, um, if you don't know anything about it, then there is kind of no point. <laughs> but what I found was that a few years back, I was sort of obliged to study church history in order to pass something. And so I had to get into it. And, and the, the, the greatest, uh, the best thing about it all is, is you see, you know, human tragedy and, and uh, uh, you know, God coming through in these situations. But the most interesting thing about it all is it just seems like we've been on this cycle of things that we just repeat every so often because we don't learn from the lessons of the past. And so I thought, well, look, this is, a, a, you know, a, a new plant, a new church, Let's try and do things in a way where we don't necessarily have to mistake, make all the mistakes of the past <laughs> that have happened in the, in the 2,000 years since, since Christ's death and resurrection. So that's the rationale behind it, is to try and become a little bit more aware. Because, um, you know, obviously we take inspiration from Scripture, we take inspiration from God, and then we learn from the mistakes of others <laughs> and the good things that other people do. What is it? Uh, there's, a, there's a popular saying... Um, and a fool doesn't learn from his mistakes. You know, a smart person learns from his mistakes. A wise person learns from the mistakes of other people. So it's quite cool. Um, and, and this is and it's interesting because there should be this idea that really we do end up repeating things of the past because it says in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, what is it? There's no new thing under the sun. So even at the time of Solomon, he was completely aware of this fact that like in reality, we think that there's novelty, but there, aren't, there isn't really that much. You know, there's nothing that hasn't been seen by God. And so that's, that's pretty cool. And so last time we dealt with, I guess, very much the early church, the early church issues. Um, we spoke about the idea of um, apostolic succession and what it means today. And it's a big word, but it basically just means... Um, the idea of apostolic succession is that uh, the early church could say, well, the person that's talking to you now had hands laid on them by a person who had hands laid on them by a person who had hands laid on them by a person who was an apostle. <laughs> and, and so there was that continuity. And they were saying, well, we have that, you know, this, this, uh, the death and resurrection of Christ that's happened 100 or 200 years ago, we have that direct link going back to that. And that's something that's been carried through in some churches now to the present date. They, they sort of claim that, that sense of authority. And whereas now it maybe is, is a sense of authority, in those days it was a sense of, it was used as a sense of validity, of saying, hey, we have a very direct connection back to the people that lived through this event, and then were commissioned by God to get going. So that's, that's, that's pretty cool, though, sort of like sons of that inherent, inheritance. So, um, and then when we got on to about, I think, pretty much um, 
we finished up more or less with uh, post-persecution with Christianity becoming the state religion in Rome um, under Constantine. And, uh, and that's more or less where we left it up. Now, there's an awful lot of stuff that happened in history. I know you're shocked. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not going to attempt to cover it all. I'm not going to do it as much justice as probably I should, and, and no doubt there will be letters and emails um, as to bits I left out or should have covered and things like that. What I'm trying to do is, is get an overview of key events of an event, actually one particular sort of thing that happened, try and pull some meaning and tease some things out of that, learn a few things, and then you know, we'll move on to the next one. And, and so for this one, I wanted, for, this, for this particular talk, I wanted to really focus on the East-West Schism of 1054. The East-West Schism of 1054. Um, so 1054, that's, what, about a thousand years ago? Sure. Yeah, about a thousand years ago or something like that, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and why is this really important? Well, it's interesting because depending on which book you read, it's kind of either played up or downplayed. Uh, they're sort of saying, well, it happened. We, you know, there were all of these other factors that caused it to happen, but it didn't really seem to be that much of a big deal at the time. The actual schism itself didn't seem to be that much of a big deal at the time. And there are others that say, well, you know, this, is the, uh, this, is, this, was, this was a key moment, a key event. Uh, you know, this, this, but to break it down to a single event is very, very tricky. The reason I find it interesting is because it's, if you like, the first schism in the church that leads to, you know, where, where we think of denominations nowadays, it's the first one where there's still definable separation between them. So before you had effectively the state church, the Roman church, and you had like sects that broke off or people that thought their own little things and were often declared heretical and they went aside. But for the first time you ended up with a schism in the church that split into... And that actually continues to this very day. The difference between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And you, you know this because you, you would have heard of Orthodox churches, like Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, which is the Eastern part, and the Western Church, which we would call Roman Catholicism. So all of the other denominations weren't really around at that point, but you had this split off between the Orthodox churches and the Western churches. And that officially, in inverted commas, happened in 1054. And we'll explain why it's the inverted commas in a little bit. And really, it had to do with the fact that the Western Church was centred around Rome and was Latin-speaking, and which is the, you know, the Roman Catholic Church nowadays, more or less. And the Eastern Church was centred uh, centred in Constantinople, which is Istanbul in Turkey nowadays. And so you had this sort of split that happened between these uh, predominantly Greek-speaking Eastern churches, Orthodox churches, and the predominantly Latin-speaking Western churches. And, uh, and, and um, so it's really interesting because even today, we probably look at them from the outside and say, well, they, they look very, very similar in a sense. They have similar kind of hierarchies. They have small differences here and there, but they look fairly similar. And, and this is interesting because this schism, you know, this is, you imagine these churches that are now separate today have been separate for the better part of a millennia. Like that's, that's pretty impressive. It is. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of, in terms of tracing back, you know, denominations that actually 
exist nowadays. So what were the key issues? If things are going well, you stick together. <laughs> what causes things like this to happen? And the interesting thing about the East-West split is we think of it as just being like this sort of lightning bolt. Okay, I'm no longer coming to your church. You're no longer coming to my church. It's easy like that. Actually, it's kind of, in terms of slow burns, <laughs> it's pretty slow burn. Because <laughs> we had, what, the Council of Nicaea in 325, right? Right about the same time as Christianity coming up as a state religion. And you have to imagine that basically a lot of the issues that came up that led to the schism in 1054 came about from that point. So how long did it take to create a church split? Maybe the better part of six or seven hundred years? <laughs> That's pretty impressive, like in terms of slow burns. Okay. And so that was that that's so that, that's the, that's sort of the time frame over which this stuff and, and I can't, you know, I can't condense six hundred years of history into uh, thirty-five minutes, thirty-five seconds required for a sermon, but we're gonna we're gonna sort of get through some of the main things. And and it's interesting because it's so what was, so here's some interesting interesting points about what sort of contributed to that and the kind of differences that develop over a thousand years to create a movement that splits apart. And when we say a movement that splits apart, you have to imagine in terms of the church world, we talk about the Eastern Church in Constantinople. If you have a look at a map of the split that happened, it's kinda of like the world divided in half. Like in, in its own little in its own little way, you know, all of these people on this side east, all of on these people west, and then they try and after the split, there was a bit of fighting that went on after that. But one, some things that kind of came up, that well, the one that's classically attributed is a thing called the filioque clause in the creed, right? And I had to go back and check it because I'd been pronouncing it filioque clause. And it's kind of tricky because, you know, why did the split happen? Well, it's all because of the filioque clause, and, you know, there's a clause put in the creed, and the Eastern Church didn't feel okay about it. <laughs> right, so they developed a creed in Nicaea called the Nicene Creed. Some of you would have heard, and it has evolved a little bit. Some of you will have heard it uh, in, a, in a hilt, well, heard it, uh, there's a couple of variations, but heard the general gist of things in the song The Creed by Hillsong. It's a statement of belief. And there was this, um, and so, so this, was, this was the crux of the argument. The um, Latin church made a small addition to the creed relating to the nature of the Holy Spirit. They're talking about the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father. And this is known in Greek. This is how it read in Greek. The Holy Spirit who proceeds, well, summarizing, who proceeds from the Father. And then the Latin church, the Western church, added this, or the Latin speaking church, when they did their thing, they added this thing, proceeds from the Father, and added the words in Latin, which I think is added the word in Latin, Proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. We could spend a lot of time going into the rationale of that, but, but I, I want to just try and get to the, the point of the matter. The insertion of the words and the Son, the Eastern Church didn't really like very much. <laughs> In fact, they didn't like it at all. And this is despite the fact that the Latin of the Creed inserted it and the Son. But the Western Church in the Greek, like, so the Western Church, okay, which again was predominantly Latin speaking, but they had a version of the Creed that was in Greek. And the version in the Greek didn't have that reference. But those three letters, three letters, three words, one word in Latin, but three words, were enough 
to cause a huge amount of friction, a large amount of ink to be sent back and forth, and uh, that's one of the key contributing factors to the schism. Three words in the creed. <laughs> now, that's, uh, you might say, there's, there's a couple of ways of looking at this. Because it's important, I mean, in some respects, it's good that people fight over things like the creed, because it's a statement of belief, it's a statement of understanding. And it might sound like it's a small thing for three words, but the, 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 the issue in the evolution of, of the creed reflects the issue and evolution of the way in which we thought about and understood Christo- like Christ very much. And there's a lot of, uh, and we spoke in the last one, there's a lot of sort of argy-bargy about, okay, trying to get our heads around who Christ was and developing this better understanding of the incarnation, you know, the fact that he was fully God and fully man. And this was important, like it was important for the church to get together and work this stuff out because it sets the tone for everything else. We, we sometimes think of people, I think, as, as a tendency to think of people in history in the early church as being dumb, um, but they spend a lot of time having to think about things that really actually influence us nowadays. Um, I have a, um, just behind the timer, I was going to save this for the end, but I read this, I read this the other day, and it kind of, this isn't in relation to Philoke Clause, but it is a, sort of an important part of the, of the creed. And I've lost my place. There we go, Gregory. Apologies, I had this written down. But it relates to the nature of Christ in these... Uh, my bookmark fell out, I'm sorry. But you sort of get the, the general... I'll come back to it at the end. But it's, sort of, it's really interesting. It's written... Uh, the, 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 the crux of the matter is a, um, it's a chap called Gregory of... Um, Gregory of Nazianus and basically he's saying in the 3rd or 4th century you know Christ had to be fully man and fully human (laughs) if only half of mankind fell only half of Adam fell then only half of Christ had to be human (laughs) because he only had to save the half that fell but since the whole of man fell that Christ had to be fully human. In the same manner, he had to be fully divine in order for it to be a perfect sacrifice. And this is obvious to us nowadays, but it, you know, and, and was obvious to people writing at the time of Scripture. But it required that you know, there was a lot of people that came and said, oh, we're trying to understand this better, we're trying to divvy up bits and pieces, and, and it became this like declaration, it has to be this way. We have to think of things in this way because if we don't think of things in this way, nothing else makes sense. And that kind of stuff is important. That kind of debate and that kind of back and forth is important because it helps us move closer to an understanding of God using the resources that he's gifted, gifted to us. So that stuff is important. The flip side of that is that the insertion of three words <laughs> causing a split of a massive church when half the church was only using it for half of their sort of activities, that is, is one sort of key factor. And the reality is that I think that, that, that probably is, it's important, but it's not as important as some of the other cultural factors that went into the split. Another, one, another argument was um, about the use of leaven in bread in communion. 
So the Western Church allowed bread with yeast in it in communion. The Eastern Church insisted on having um, bread without yeast in it. So it's a pretty big argument. So here, our main thing here is leaven or leaven, not really so much of an issue. Gluten, that can be a little bit of an issue, but that's more of a... <laughs> right, that's, that's, that, that's just because, you know, like, that's just because we have to cater to people with celiac disease. And when we want them to, right, to be able to take communion regularly along with us because we value that. So that is important. But, you know, there we go. That's one of the arguments. Um, so here's another, here's another thing. You guys understand what icons are? You've got an icon, right? Okay. While we're getting a show and tell, right? So pictures of Jesus or pictures of, of saints and things like that. Yeah, so icons. And there was an argument in uh, 709, between 700 and 900 between those that wanted to... There we go. Basically between those in the church that wanted to destroy icons and those in the church that wanted to... Keep icons. It's not real gold. That's good. That's good. Right. Uh, this is this is this is interesting because it's relevant to us nowadays. So, and the concern was that if we make icons, that people worship them and they become idols, rather than, you know, rather than just an image or something along those lines. And so you had on one hand you said people are saying, well, we can't make icons because they're a representation of the image of God, and you know, it says, no, make no graven image, and it becomes idolatry, people worship you know, the images and things along those lines, and all of a sudden we're going to end up with a whole stack of idol worshippers. And then there was another part of the church that was saying, well, hang on a minute, like, we're not talking about worshipping these things, we're talking about veneration. We're not talking about actually sort of worship, the same kind of worship that you give to God. It's just being aware of something and, and, and it's showing a picture or showing qualities of, of Christ or, or you know, expressions of Christ and God's love and, and famous events that bring us closer to an understanding of God through art and through, you know, in the same manner that we do things nowadays, through music. We try and get close to God through music. We try and use these ways of expression, however imperfectly, as a way of trying to understand God a little bit more, of trying to get a little bit closer, of trying to engage a little bit more closely and things like that. And so you had these two camps between people that were sort of uh, iconoclasts who were seeking to destroy them and icononodules who were seeking to sort of elevate them up. Now, the interesting thing about it all is that, because we think of the Catholic Church as having these sort of icons everywhere and we get worried about it as being a type of idolatry, um, it's interesting, the Western Church, what we, how we call the Roman Catholic Church, was, was largely on the side of the destruction of icons, and the Eastern Church was largely on the side of, of sort of elevating them. And, and, and a lot of it had to do with language again, because in Greek it was easier to, have, to use the words to describe the type of worship that you give to God and the type of veneration that you might use towards an icon. Whereas in Latin, it was far more difficult to express the idea that the worship that you give to God, which is not idolatry, is different to sort of, you know, like engaging with an icon in a manner that's not idolatry, basically, was what, was what they were trying to get to. And so there was this quite um, heated argument over it. And there's some speculation, which I think is really interesting, that at this time, there was a large influence from the Islamic world around... The, uh, the regions when this was going on. And of course, uh, 
The Islamic world is strictly no images, no images of the Prophet, no images of anything along those lines. And so because of that uh, influence, it was seen as sort of like, oh, well, well you know, if, if that's what they're doing, we need to do a similar kind of thing as well. So it's, it's really interesting how these sort of cultural effects come into it. We're trying to get down to a, and cultural and linguistic things get in the way of trying to have an argument, uh, try, trying to have a constructive debate and lead to just an argument and things along those lines. The other thing that was, um, who had the ultimate authority? So Rome thought there were like the five, for the Pentarchy, the five churches that really sort of had authority in the world, and it was competition between Rome and Constantinople. Rome was thought to have ultimate authority. But the flip side of that is that the Western Roman Empire had collapsed. <laughs> and so there was, you know, that they had... The Pope in the West had spiritual authority, but it was taking time to get any kind of state or political authority back. Whereas in the East, it was far more straightforward for the, for the, for the patriarch to also have political power, secular power, as well as church power and things along those lines. So there was this argument as to... And then there were ecclesiastical courts that were in the East that were thought to be supreme, and then, but then you had the bishop in Rome who was the senior bishop. So you had this sort of continuing argument about who had authority to do what over it. And you got all of these little issues, but... I think, I think the heart of it is actually issues of culture. That you're dealing firstly with two groups that have, speak a different language. And you imagine going to a council where you're you know, a bishop or something important in the church. And you go to a council and you're asked to sign off on these things. And half of the debate you can't understand because it's in Greek. <laughs> and the other half of the debate your opponents can't understand because it's in Latin. And then you're all coming together to agree on things and you have to sign stuff at the end of it all that's been translated into Greek and to Latin and hope that the translation has done a good job and that you're signing up to the right thing. And it created a large amount of mistrust. And a lot of... Because, you know, it's like, well, what am I signing? You know, that, that hasn't happened at all in history where people have signed treaties that have been translated in language and there's been issues with it, right? That's, anybody who's from New Zealand knows, even now, the uh, continuing ongoing debate over translations relating to the Treaty of Waitangi because what was said perhaps in English is not necessarily reflective as well in the languages, in the other languages that it was, that it was put into. So this sort of thing was happening all the time. And so, so how did it happen? How did it all go down? You know, we had this, this issue of culture, issue of language, but there's also a different kind of subtext that was going on. And this is a broad generalisation, but generally the Western church tended to be very analytical uh, tended to try and debate things out, tended to employ philosoph philosophy and, and, and to try and, and I guess, study the, the word, study um, the church, try and get an understanding of God you know, using, I guess, the, the gifts of thinking <laughs> that they'd been given. Whereas perhaps more in the, in the Orthodox Church, in the, in the Eastern Church, there was this feeling that one really, that, that, that a, a deeper understanding of the things of God came experientially where you had this, this quiet, contemplative sort of religion, which, again, there were elements of that in both, but it was just this general feel that, you know, rather than necessarily thrashing things out in one's mind, you sought to quiet yourself and, and, and get a vision and a revelation of God and that contemplative, experiential Christianity. And, and so, so you had kind of these, these competing cultures in both sense, the analytical and the rational and, 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 and the experiential that have gone on. Now, so in 1054, what actually happened? You think this is going to be, you know, right. And uh, the reality is that it actually was, was 
was pretty uh, pretty painless in terms of it. well not pretty painless that's not really a good way of putting it what I mean is that it's just interesting how much of a non-event it kind of was because uh, there was this legate that was sent to um, there had been letters back and forth and people going back and forth between the patriarch of the Eastern Church and the Bishop of Rome right and eventually he sent a legate over there um, and it was you know they're trying to get to this end of this slow burn of an argument that had been happening since the 4th century. Um, and they realised they couldn't go any further, so the, the legate who was sent, um, they had a big event that was going on at Hagia Sophia, which is a massive church. It's actually now a museum, or was a mosque. But um, the, the Church of Wisdom, actually, oh, God's Wisdom, it sort of translates that. It's interesting. Um, they had this big event, you know, and, and they realised that this was going nowhere, the Pope had actually authorised the bulls of excommunication, that is, the, the, you know, excommunicating the, the Eastern Patriarch, saying you're no longer part of this church. Um, had died by that point <laughs> a few months earlier, which created a problem, but we'll get to that problem in a little bit. Um, and basically, the, uh, the, the guys turned up for an event, the Patriarchs and staff turned up for an event, and they found that they'd left the bulls of excommunication just on the altar. <laughs> So the, 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 the legate had just like, right, okay, this isn't going anywhere, put him on the altar, and then just left. He didn't even bother to sort of, you know, say, hey, you're out. It was just a kind of a, like it was, you know, that, that's basically how it's done. Big church, you're out. What time period? 1054. Uh, April in 1054, actually. So it was laid on the altar in, ha- in the Hagia Sophia, April 1054, excommunicating patrol, patri- uh, patriarch Michael Seruya. I'll say that wrong. Right? And the guy who did it, oh, the guy who did it, his name was Humbert. That's <laughs> uh, so a Humbert. And he's just like, yep, right, okay, this isn't going anywhere. We've sent letters, we haven't got anywhere. Boom, on the altar. And so, of course, you know, the patriarch did what every um, good patriarch does, um, in that he turned around a couple of months later and said, right, well, I'm going to excommunicate you, Pope Leo. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's mutual excommunication that happened. Now, again, the problem was, although this wasn't really addressed at the time and hasn't really been addressed since. Um, is that, okay, so only the Pope can issue the excommunication, and if the Pope dies, it's kind of invalid. So um, that's my brief knowledge of un- excommunication there, basically. So, you know, the, 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 the bull, the papal bull of excommunication was presented. It wasn't really valid because the Pope had died a few months earlier, but, you know, it takes time for that sort of information to get around. So, um, but, and so, uh, you know, the, the patriarch of Constantinople turned around and excommunicated the Pope who was dead. Um, so you can see sort of how, how sort of ridiculous it kind of gets in its own little way. And um, so, so this is the... And then, so what's happened since is the main thing. Well, the good news is, is that they eventually rescinded those writs of excommunication. Um, in 1965, <laughs> in the Second Vatican Council, they decided... Right? They still can't. They still don't agree on everything. Like, they still, and they're not going to. It's not going. No, but, you know, like, it only took 911 years to decide, well, you know, maybe, maybe, that, was, maybe that was a step too far. Well, you know now. And the other thing is that, um, actually, it's really interesting. It's Cardinal Ratzinger wrote 
because they, they've been having this conversation about, you know, can the Eastern Church and the Western Church ever truly reconcile? And he sort of said, it was very interesting, he's saying, saying for, the, for, for, the, for the Eastern Church to completely accept us, we have to uh, agree that certain of our teachings are heretical by their standards, which is never going to happen. And likewise, in reverse, there are aspects of that that are never going to happen. But what we can do is move to a point where we can accept that we have both grown up in our separate traditions and, you know, in a fundamental sense, have enough similarities for common ground. And I thought that was really, really interesting. He actually said it much more eloquently than I put it there, but he was sort of saying, you have to understand this is these extremes of acceptance that are just never going to be met. But there is going to be this sort of middle ground in which we can coexist. <laughs> and, and, I mean, you know, this, we say this continues on today. Um, there, in, in a sense, it does. I remember there's, um, there's normally, there's like a service in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre each year in Jerusalem where they have like a, a Catholic section, have an Orthodox section, they have another thing like that. But they're very clearly, clearly delineated. The church is basically divvied up in this section. And, it's, and a few interesting things happen at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The, where the priests can sit and be during these days when they have to share it um, is, um, is very, very clearly delineated, such that actually uh, there was a punch-up a few years back between um, at one of the services because one guy moved his chair out of the sun, but it, it went from, I don't know, the Orthodox section to the Catholic section back again or something like that, and it was on for young and old. Uh, if you have a look at pictures of the Holy Sepulchre, there's actually a church, there's actually a ladder that's been left on the outside of the thing a ladder that's been left on the outside of the thing. Uh, and it hasn't been removed since... It's been there for decades, and it hasn't been removed because no one um, is willing to accept... Respo- you know, no, no one can agree who has responsibility to remove the ladder. I'd just be a troll and just, like, go up and move it. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit. And, and so... And, and, um, the thing is, we, we, we laugh at these sorts of things, but we don't, it's, it's just to... Like, it's not, not to be disrespectful, but just to, to, to sort of try and gain an understanding of how things can go... You know when, when we when we hold on to stuff, and there's stuff that is good to hold on to. As I said, that quote from uh, that I am actually going to read properly now, so that we can get it. Gregory of Nazianzus says, "Stuff that's good to hold on to, and there's stuff that will always hold the centrality of what we believe here as being important, and that will differ from, obviously, from the Catholics and from Orthodoxy and from other denominations as well, even within our own." Protestant, there are things that we hold that are important that maybe aren't as important to others or they see things slightly differently and things like that. But, you know, there are also centralities about which we can't move. And, and I like this one. It's the saying, Gregory of Nazianus, if anyone believes in Jesus Christ as a human being without human reason, then they are the ones devoid of all reason. Um, he wasn't trying to make friends with this, by the way. I'll just say uh, And unworthy of salvation... For that which he has not taken up, he has not saved. He saved that which he joined to his divinity. If only half of Adam had fallen, then it would be possible for Christ to take up and save only half. But if the entire human nature fell, all of it must be united to the word, capital W, Logos, Christ, in order to be saved as a whole. And, and I love it because it's early, <laughs> because it's to the point. And, it, and, and, that's, and that's sort of a key key aspect of this is that, you know, that's kind of stuff that we're not going to give up on. But there's a, a really cool um, saying that you hear every now and again, and it's attributed to various different people. The best attribution, I think, is actually a guy called Rupert. 
uh, Rupert Meldinius. Right. I thought that was pretty cool because he's always referred to as Meldinius. I'm like, I wonder what his first name was. It's Rupert. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you'd have heard it before. In essential things, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. And in all things, charity. Yeah. And, and it's kind of really cool. And it's like, okay, charity. Latin, caritas. Greek, agape. Love. Right? The same word that's in the love verse, 1 Corinthians 13. Right? That same word. And this is really the crux of the matter. It's good to hold on to the stuff. The important stuff, absolutely, in unity, at the centrality. And I think you strip away some of the little arguments about this, that, and the other. There's an awful lot of common ground at the centre of much of Christendom. There are things that are different, and importantly so, but there is that centrality. In non-essential things, liberty. That means that there's going to be some stuff which we're going to hold slightly different beliefs, and if it's not really a, uh, detrimental to someone's salvation or their life, or what's written in the Word of God, then there can be some liberty in that sort of things like that. But how do we make a bridge? How do we avoid these situations where... And I will say after the schism, like there were wars that fought, there were crusades, the crusaders that went across to the eastern side and set up a church there of the western variety and then came back. And, uh, you know, that was, it's been nasty for a few hundred years. At the time Rupert Meldinius wrote that, it was thought, a pamphlet was around about the time of the Thirty Years' War. Um, so... This stuff was, you know, which, which, again, had some roots in the English Reformation at that time. So there were, there were arguments, you know, countries going to war on the basis of whether they were um, Catholic or Protestant. And so he's writing it at this time when, you know, the, the non-essential things, liberty, was, was uh, shouts a lot louder when you think about it. We sort of think about, oh, the difference between this church and that church. I mean, this is the difference between, like, this, this country and that country and the two of them fighting, you know, for political power in that instance. So it sort of has a large amount of resonance in that instance. So in essential things, unity. In non-essential things, liberty. In all things, charity. I, um, so what's an example of this one? Love being the bridge. Love is the bridge that allows us to actually keep the main things the main things rather than getting focused or bogged down on things that aren't important. Um, this is one of my favourite uh, sort of verses in this area and um, it's also an example of what happens when you kind of take things slightly out of context. Romans 14. Accept one whose faith is weak without quarrelling or disputing matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another, this is Paul talking, by the way, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. I love that. Why? Because if you took that in isolation and posted that on Facebook, man, the amount of hate that you would get. <laughs> St. Paul did not like vegetarians. <laughs> and in the process, we completely miss the point. Right? The one who eats everything must not treat contempt with contempt the one who does not. Right? So we're not allowed to be contemptuous towards vegetarians is basically what is being said there. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, which is God in this instance, servants stand or fall. And this is the bit that I love. And they will stand... 
for the Lord is able to make them stand. Mm. Right? So let's go back to this. It's simply saying you're going to have people with slightly different beliefs that aren't you know, detrimental, right? One person doesn't mind eating everything. Another person is a vegetarian. And this reflects an early conflict in the Roman church at the time Paul was writing, right? There were people who were saying, oh, you know, we have to keep to these dietary laws, we only eat vegetables. This is not uh, having a go at vegetarians. And, and um, again, Facebook posts, comments, emails, you know, tweets and things like that saying David doesn't like vegetarians. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm simply using it as an example. <laughs> is, is that... Um, that simply that uh, this was going on at the church at that time. And I love this sort of thing. It's like, to their own master. In other words, in the eyes of God, you will stand or fall. And you will stand because God is able to make you stand. <laughs> and, and, and if you get time, Romans 14, I encourage you to read the, um, the rest of that. Because it's really good about handling, I guess, differences, small differences of opinion and things like that. And knowing that, that kind of that... Um, that line between the essential things in which we have unity and the non-essential things in which we can allow a certain amount of liberty. But how on earth to how 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 on earth actually is quite quite apt. How on earth to actually approach people in love to ensure that we don't uh, have slow burn issues that continue for 400 years and then take 900 years to get any to make any progress to get back on. Right, like it's a really long time frame to to have things crack on. So um, so that that's sort of the one you know. Important take-home. Um, probably most of you wrote down, Paul does not like vegetarians from that note point. That's not kind of the main point I was trying to make. Um, but it is, it, is, it is sometimes funny to read the Bible. <laughs> I love that one. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. You know, people sometimes say, I don't see how the Bible is relevant to my life. Um, you know... Sometimes you just have to go on Facebook and it's like you've got a whole stack of people judging vegetarians for not eating people, for not eating people, for not eating meat. We are, we are allowed to judge people for eating people. I think that that's, that's cannibalism is wrong. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like the response is this kind of like, well, you don't eat meat. You, know, you, you eat meat. You're a terrible person. It's really interesting because they got to the crux of the matter in the, in the first and second century. Um, This was, an, this, was, this, was, this was a common theme in the early church and that people would say, well, I'm a Christian. And then some people would say, oh, but I found a way to be slightly holier than you, so I'm more awesome. And then they would create this kind of belief around it based on something. And then Paul spent most of his time writing letters saying, look, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> stop trying to put barriers up between people. Stop trying to put barriers up between yourself. Right? And, and there, there are some great things further on in verse 14 where it talks about this idea that... Um, how we approach things like alcohol, where you have to use a little bit of common sense, right? If, if so, for example, if you know, you're dealing with people that are reformed alcoholics, right? Going out and having an event where you're drinking, even in moderation, is not a great idea because it what, leads them to stumble. It puts a, a, a barrier up in front of other people in terms of Christ. So it's not necessarily the eating or the drinking, the vegetables, the meat, whatever that's the, that's the issue. It's the way in which it impedes people in their walk with Christ. And that's kind of the key. And the difference between that is that instead of being rooted in law, in rooted in this, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, or you should, or you don't, or I, I don't like what you're doing, it's actually rooted in love. It's a concern for someone else that says, you know what, because of what we have to walk through together, you know, I'm going to act a certain way based on the love that God has shown me 
and the love that I want to pour out into the people around me. So that's, that's kind of the, the heart of that verse. But, um, yeah, in defense of vegetarianism, that can be a different, uh, different sermon, maybe. What about vegans? I'm sure they're fine. I'm sure they're fine. I love this. This is why we call it a discussion point. Who doesn't eat meat? That's, that's fine. That so we said at the start, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And so we see this. The issues of the early church got carried through and the issues of the middle church even get carried through today. We still find it difficult to operate in love, to know where that fine line is. And we still set up divisions between ourselves, sometimes arbitrarily, based on things that are perhaps interesting but not necessarily significant for the purposes of salvation or for the purposes of advancing the kingdom of God. The other thing I think is that what I find the most interesting about it is this, this conflict that's happened between, I guess, what I would call like the intellectual pursuit of God that maybe in this case is broadly represented by the Roman church. Again, that's a broad brush stroke. I'm just trying to make a point. And I guess the experiential side of God. And I find that very interesting because obviously I've grown up in churches very much like this one, charismatic Pentecostal churches, which very heavily emphasize the experiential, which is a good thing. and I love it. What it means is that as a, an intellectual or someone who pursues God on an intellectual level as well, you do kind of feel like the old one out. And, and, and you kind of feel like it's not important or it's not as valued. Or, or, and a lot of that stems from the, the, the root of these organizations, which we will talk about in, in, coming, in coming sessions of this, where there was a little bit of an anti-intellectual bent um, at the heart of it all. The reality is, in my mind, and, and, and this is played out in this, this sort of these two things about you know, experiential versus intellectual in the church schism that happens. The reality is that it's pursuit of God either way. We pursue God through our experiences, through worship, through getting to know His Holy Spirit, but we also you know, pursue God through our intellect and through our ability to reason and, 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 and to, to use the gifts that God has given us. I love, I love that quote from Eric Little, the, um, the runner from the 1920s Olympics who refused to... 1920s, I got that wrong anyway. The guy refused to run on a Sunday. He said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Yeah. Right? So I think in my mind, right, God gave me a way of looking at the world or thinking about things. And when I do that, I feel his pleasure. God made me capable of worship, and when I do that, I feel his pleasure. And this kind of this thing is sort of saying, well, actually, we don't need to separate these two things out. That if it is active pursuit of God that brings yourself and other people closer to God, then it is something that we should embrace and celebrate within the church. And it's interesting because this is like the 2,000-year the burn that's happened in this argument has been condensed into the 100 years of the church that, you know, the, the church movement that we're a part of in the last little while and it's still ongoing today. And we return back to our original, original thought in Ecclesiastes 1.9 that there is no new thing under the sun. So, 